Uh, God, we just come before you. We thank you for your love again, God. We ask that now, uh, by your love, you would give us ears to hear, God, a steadfast heart to be facing you, to be looking towards your face, God, that we wouldn't be distracted by any cares of the world or anything uh, that might be overtaking our mind, God. And right now, I pray for Andrew. God, as he's about to bring uh, your word, God, the very, the very word where you, you explain uh, so much of yourself, uh, salvation, God. But like unto it, your words also, it, it makes things, God. It makes things. So God, may, uh, may your words that he is expounding on make us love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Anybody hear me? Am I on? I'll just yell. I Okay. Well, I'll yell now. We are. Okay. Uh, what is the longest book in the Bible? Psalms. Psalms. That did not go the way I thought it would. You're right. So Isaiah is a very long book in the Bible. Uh, and we named our church actually after one of the chapters in the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a prophet. He was sent by God to the people of Israel. And usually what happens with the people of Israel was they got stuck in idolatry. They started worshiping other gods. God would send a prophet to warn them. They would not listen. Then the prophet would say, look, these people are going to come and judge you. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, they're going to come and judge you because you're not following God, you're worshiping other gods, etc. So that was Isaiah's job. Now Isaiah was prophesying about the Babylonians coming to destroy the people of Israel. But Isaiah also prophesied that there was someone coming who would defeat all of Israel's enemies. He would show up, he would be powerful, he would be strong. Isaiah starts off his uh, work in ministry in Isaiah chapter 1 in a not-so-popular way. He starts off by calling them sinners. He starts off by saying that they're sick from their head to their toes. I mean, can you imagine? You know, somebody's doing a special presentation to the United States of America, or even to this room, and says, hey, you guys are so sinful that it's like a sickness that is afflicting you from your head to your toe. I wonder if we see sin that way, as a sort of disease or a virus that completely consumes the body. That was Isaiah's picture of what sin was. That's how he starts the book. Uh, Jewish legend basically says that Isaiah met his fate by being sawed in half. Okay? Now you can understand why a guy like that would not be very popular. So all through the book of Isaiah, you have the, the condemnation of sin, the condemnation of idolatry. He comes up with a famous phrase. Everybody kind of knows it. Nobody is righteous. No, not one. There's none who does good. Isaiah said, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. That was him. Um, when Isaiah said all of our righteousness was as filthy rags, the term for filthy rags is um, basically use tampons is what Isaiah was saying in, in, that, in that passage. He says, all of your good deeds, that's, how, that's your righteousness. He's talking to the people of Israel. So the people of Israel are in serious trouble. You know that you're in trouble when your bad deeds are bad, but also when your good deeds are bad. When your good deeds are bad, you're in a ton of trouble, okay? This is a situation 
that the people of Israel found themselves in. So when you're reading through Isaiah, you're basically saying, we have zero hope. But Isaiah says, well, actually, no. There is a root of Jesse. There is somebody coming from David's line, and we've been reading in 1 Samuel, but we're going to take a break now if you didn't know. There's a, 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 a descendant of David that is going to come and deliver us from all this evil. All this horribleness, he's going to save us. And at the time, many of the Jews thought, okay, so all the good people, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to like fight this awesome battle and take out all the bad guys and all the bad people, the Messiah is going to destroy them. Okay? And how many people believe that they're the bad guy in the story? Most of the time, as I've been reading through 1 Samuel, every time Saul comes up and does something crazy, people are shaking their heads. That's Saul. I know most of you. So, Isaiah chapter 53, starting from verse 1. By the way, cell 53 was named after the chapter in this book. Isaiah 53 is probably one of the most famous uh, passages in the Bible, and in my opinion, it's one of the most important passages in the Bible, but we're not going to start on Isaiah 53, actually. We're going to start in verse 13 of Isaiah 52. So if you go right before that, you can start from verse 13. Isaiah is going to introduce to the people of Israel what the solution is. Because there has to be some solution. We can't keep cycling in this horrible situation that we're in with sin and sickness and all the rest of it. How do we find a way out? Well, let's look. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So God is going to send somebody that is going to live a wise life. And because of that wise life, he's going to be high, he's going to be lifted up, and he's going to be exalted. He's going to be worshipped. Now, when it says, my servant shall act wisely, why does Isaiah use that term? Well, somebody finish out the sentence for me. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. So when it says, my servant shall act wisely, he's not saying this guy is going to be really smart. What he's saying is, this is a guy who's going to walk fearing God, meaning respecting God, honoring God. All that this person does is going to be about respecting and honoring God. He will act wisely. And that guy is going along to plan. If you find somebody that's all they're doing is honoring and respecting God, of course. They're going to be highly exalted. They're going to be lifted up. People are going to look at him and say, that guy is awesome. So Isaiah is presenting to you a Savior who's going to come and be awesome. And you go, well, yes, this is what I expect. Absolutely. Look at the next line. As many were astonished at you. Well, okay. This guy is astonishingly amazing. This is making a lot of sense. This is how you should treat the Savior of the world. Look at the next line. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What in the world? You just said this guy is going to be high and lifted up and exalted. And then the very next line you say that this person is going to be beaten beyond human recognition. He's saying... When you run into this person, if you were to see him, 
you would not even be able to recognize him as a human being. That's what the text says. His appearance was marred beyond human semblance. Think about that for a moment. So you have this a glaring contradiction. On the one hand, you've got a guy that's going to be exalted. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be amazing. Everybody's going to be astonished at him. But then he gets lifted up on a cross and beaten beyond human semblance. And you won't even be able to recognize that he is who he is. You know, sometimes, I don't want to be graphic here, but in a fire or a horrible car accident, they will check your dental records because you're just so mangled that they can't identify you from your facial features. This is what this person ended up looking like after he got done being beaten. He was beaten beyond human recognition. Verse 15. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So because of this person's suffering, nations are sprinkled. Now, many of us who don't have a background in the Old Testament goes, what does it mean the nations are sprinkled? Well, it means a couple of things. When God was gathering of people and saying, look, I'm going to be your God, okay? And you guys are going to be my people. We're entering into sort of like a marriage contract type thing. What God did was he took blood and he sprinkled the people that he was going into that, that contract with. He sprinkled them with blood. And the idea was, uh, we kind of have something like this in the, in the modern times, right? You've heard the phrase blood brothers. You know, I'm going to prick my hand, you're going to prick your hand, and boom, now, look, our blood is mixing, so now we're blood brothers. That's the idea. So the idea was, look, blood is shed for us to come together. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And God's basically saying, hey, guys, I'm, we're going to be blood relatives, whatever, okay? So they sprinkled the, the people of Israel to become partners in, and have this a special relationship with God. Well, what Isaiah is saying is that because of this man's suffering, because he was beaten beyond human recognition, he gets not just Israel back into relationship with God, but now God can say to the entire world, hey guys, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people because, look, you have blood sprinkled for you. Now, why blood? Well, the scripture tells us the life is in the blood. And the scripture also tells us that the moment we sin, what we deserve from God is death. So God made it so that when we're coming into relationship with him, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, 2,000 years ago, today, doesn't matter what the time is, blood has to be shed because you have got to recognize that in order for you and God to be one again, something or someone has to die. So in the Old Testament, it was an animal. In the New Testament, it is Jesus. It is this suffering servant who brings the nations to God through his blood. He sprinkles many nations. And these nations haven't even been told about this. That's the thing. He's doing this for whole 
people who haven't even heard of him. Does this sound familiar? A man who's dying on behalf of other people who've never even heard of him yet. So there's Jesus. He's on the cross. He's beaten beyond human recognition. He's dying for people who don't even know that he's dying for them. These are the nations. Now, Israel, the people of Israel, should know why he's dying, shouldn't they? Because all this stuff was written to them. So Isaiah's going to tell us what the people that should have known why he was dying were thinking while he was dying. So as far as we go, we're, we're those nations. Okay, unless you're Jewish. Nobody's Jewish here. So unless you're Jewish, we're those nations that we didn't know why he was dying. You realize this. However you heard about Jesus, your forefathers at one point or another had no clue who he was. You realize this. You, you, you were, America, okay, the Western Hemisphere was not a Christianized hemisphere. It had to be, you had to have missionaries come over here and explain the gospel to our people. Okay, Europe, same thing. Christianity started in the Middle East. Okay, you know, Iraq, Syria, those types of places. We are late to the party. Okay, now... Let's start in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord is God's action as it relates to his power. So all through the scripture, for example, when God parted the Red Sea, it says with an outstretched arm, he saved Israel from Egypt. So his arm is a metaphorical way of saying God's power. So what are they saying? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed means who has actually seen God's power for what it really is? Here's a question. What's more powerful to do? Part the Red Sea and get a million people from Egypt into the Promised Land or to get one sinner to repent of their sins and follow God? Which is more powerful? Now you go, well, I, mean, I know what's more powerful. The man who took the seed and parted it. All those people went through? I said a million. <laughs> She's saying it's more, it takes more power for God to turn one sinner to himself than it would be for the entire Red Sea. You know why? Here's why. Because when God says to the Red Sea, hey, listen, man, I want you to go over there. Want you to go over there. You know what the Red Sea does? Aye, aye, Captain. When God says, hey, Mr. Sun, I'd like you to set over here and rise over here, you know what the sun says? Aye, Captain, sure. When God says, all right, Mr. Eagle or Mr. Whatever, I'm not, I don't know anything about birds, but I want you birds to migrate here during this season. You, you know what they say? Aye, Captain. And then he comes to you and he says, you know what? I want you to follow me with your whole life. And what do you say? Well, what about me? What about what I want to do? Or, you know, if you're in the hood, you say, I'm going to do me. I got some ironically uh, gifted people here. They know what that means. I'm going to do me. It is more of a miracle for one sinner to look at God and say, okay, I'm going to follow you with my whole soul. than for the Red Sea to part. Look at your life. Look, look. You have things in your life and people in your life that are absolutely and totally destroying you. Is that not true? And people got to beg you to quit that thing. Beg you, please stop. X, Y, and Z thing. 
right? You need a miracle from God to get you to do the things even you want to do. Isn't that true? There are people in your life that are absolutely destructive. You're going to be around them. You know they're not good for you, but you're just going to still be around them. Why? Because, man, your will is enslaved to sin way more than the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. You realize that when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, they were still enslaved to their sin. The minute they got to the other side, what were they doing? Worshiping a golden calf. So Isaiah is saying, man, do you really understand what the power of God is about? It's not about destroying bad guys. Anybody can destroy bad guys. Okay? Look, the United States military, we've got the most you know, potent military on the face of the earth ever actually in human history. All right? So there's those guys over there in Syria and ISIS, and they're destroying everybody. And we go, oh, we know what we're going to do. We just take our military might and drop a bunch of bombs on them. Has that stopped them? Oh, we got the best soldiers in the world. You know, we got Navy SEAL Team 6, you know. <clears throat> so for, for, you know, there we go. We saw Ben Laden. Mm, ben Laden's dead. Do you know what happened with Al-Qaeda after Ben Laden died? I did this for you. You know what happened with Al-Qaeda after Ben Laden died? ISIS came up. They were worse than Ben Laden ever was. There's got to be a different type of power to deal with the human problem. Because just plain raw, I'm stronger than you, I can defeat you in an arm wrestling power is not going to solve the problem. So the, the author is asking the question, do you really understand what the power of God truly is about? That's the question. Now, look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He's just a young plant, a root out of dry ground. You know, if you're going and you see this, you know, a rainforest and everything's all lush and perfect, and you see these giant trees, you go, well, of course. But there you are, you know, you're walking around in a desert, and then you see this little thing coming out of the dry ground, like a root out of dry ground. It's completely negligible. That is what he's saying Jesus was like. If you were around during the time of Jesus, you would not have been able to recognize him. You, know, you watch these movies about Jesus, and like he's immediately recognized, oh, that guy's Jesus, for sure. You know, Jesus did not walk around with like this glow around him. He was a regular person. As a matter of fact, if you read in the Gospels, when Jesus comes out and says, hey, I'm the guy who's going to save the world, you know what people say to him? It's in John chapter 6. They say, this is Jesus, son of Joseph. What do you mean he came from heaven? What are you talking about? We know you. I mean, you've got to understand, you've got to at least at some level sympathize with these people. What if your, your local mechanic that you knew your, your entire life all of a sudden came and said to you, you know, Heather, I'm the savior of the world, and your transmission is out. What? He was a root out of dry ground. He was a no, he was a regular guy. And then one day, randomly, he goes and starts telling people that he's the savior of the world. You see, we only look at the outside. We never, ever, ever initially look at the inside. Ever. 
So there he is. He's a root out of dry ground. Now look what it says. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is another thing. Think about the portrayals of Jesus. He's genuine, generally an attractive young man. And God makes it so that Jesus shows up on the earth as an unattractive man. He was not beautiful. He was not majestic. He was not a guy that you would look at and go, okay, that guy right there, I'm going to follow him to the ends of the earth. Not looking at him. You wouldn't. He was just a regular guy and probably not a good-looking guy. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why would God think about this? I was listening to a, uh, a description of Muhammad. And, you know, I'm, I'm listening to the biography of Muhammad because I want to stay with it as far as um, Islamic goes. because I want to reach Muslims for Jesus. But I'm listening to a description of Muhammad. And one of the things about Muhammad was that he was a beautiful specimen of the human being. Most of you don't know that. He was beautiful. Even his male friends said that he was like the moon and the sun. He was just a beautiful man. And the women loved Muhammad. They loved him. And he, was a, he was obviously a ladies' man. But aside from that, they loved him. He was an attractive, charismatic figure. He's a beautiful dude. And then you got to think to yourself, why uh, do I follow the people I follow? Serious question. Because they got some charisma, they got some power, they got some, you know, I'm talking about the externals. Why do you like the people that you like? Would you like them the same if they weren't so cool and powerful and good looking? Would you like them the same if they were just boring and, and unrecognizable? I mean, let's think about this. You, sorry, could not say this about Brian. Can't. You could say, uh, Brian's a powerful dude, man. I'm saying naturally. So you got to question yourselves and go, wait a second. Why am I listening to this guy? I question that a lot. Why am I listening to Brian? Okay. you got a ton of spiritual power. But you understand my point is we're so carnal that we're just looking at the externals in a person. We have no clue about spiritual condition. Just outside. That's how we make relationship decisions. That's how you can, oh, okay, that's why you want to be in a relationship with a guy because, you know, he's good looking. Or, or he does something for you emotionally. You're about two inches deep. Oh. Some of y'all are like, I'm going to saw you in half, Andrew. How dare you say that to me? Seriously, though. <laughs> Some of us are two inches deep just looking externally. Don't you realize? You know, many of us believe that if Jesus was around, we'd be following him. Don't you believe that? Jesus is around on the planet Earth. I would be one of those followers. Really? 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 Because that's how you make your decisions. You're always looking at the spiritual condition and the spiritual content of the people around you. Like, that's how you currently make relationship decisions. That's how you make decisions about who your best friends are. That's how you make decisions on who you listen to. It's the spiritual first, not the external stuff. But, but you would have followed Jesus. Are you sure? Mo you realize this. Most of Jesus' followers in the New Testament did not start becoming his followers until after he rose from the dead. Huh? After he did the most amazing, mic-dropping miracle of all time, then people said, oh, okay, that's it. I'm following that guy. They knew who he was before that. 
You realize 3,000 people in one day became true and genuine followers of Jesus once they heard about the resurrection. Two weeks before he was there, why weren't they following him? He's just a regular guy, man. Just a regular dude. And when a regular guy tells you that you're in sin and you need to repent and that God is not pleased with your righteousness, you don't want to hear that from him. Verse 3, not only was Jesus ignored, but watch this, he was despised and rejected by men. So remember, earlier we said there are all these nations that he was dying for that nobody, they didn't even know who he was. This is specifically talking about the people that should have known better. His hometown despised him and rejected him. You say, well, I, don't, I mean, I read the New Testament. There are whole crowds following Jesus. What are you talking about? I mean, I read passages in the New Testament where Jesus, like, basically, like, had to hide from people because they wanted to make him king by force, John chapter 6. We tell talking about he's despised. I was listening to a Jewish guy. Some, some Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They say, this can't be about Jesus. He wasn't despised. What are you talking about? Listen to me. Ladies, if I, look, you know there's a certain type of desire that can be shown to you that is a form of rejection. You understand what I'm saying to you? That people can desire things from you, and the minute they get it from you, they don't want anything else to do with you. You know what that's like? That is the way people were with Jesus. Think about it. Yes, there were crowds. You know why there were crowds? Because they, they wanted a healing. They understood that Jesus had some powers. Oh, you know, I got a sick kid, Jesus. You know, there was one time there were ten lepers. And these lepers showed up to Jesus and they're like, hey man, we heard you can heal. Jesus said, Roger that. And he goes, boom, and he heals them. What happened? One of those ten lepers came back to thank him. You know what that is? That is rejection. That is, hey, I heard you can do something for me. Let me use you, Jesus, and then go on with my way. You say, I would never despise Jesus. How many of us are following Jesus because of what he can do for us, and not because of what, of who he is? Jesus does a miracle. He feeds 5,000 people, probably more than, more than 5,000 people. It's an amazing miracle. So then he starts some hard preaching. And you know what happened? Thousands of people abandoned him. Thousands. Why? You know what they said? They said, this is a hard teaching. Some of you, there are passages in the Bible that come out of the mouth of Jesus that you don't want anything to do with because it's too hard for you to deal with. You don't want to hear it. You're despising Jesus. He tells you, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You're not trying to hear that. There's so many things about God in the Bible that we despise and we reject because we don't like what he says. We like what he does for us. So Jesus was despised and rejected. I mean, it would be worse if you would just ignore him and say, I ain't got no, I don't want to listen to you, man. That, I mean, that would be bad, but I mean, to go to him, collect things from him, take things from him, and then go on with your way, you say, well, I'm not like that. I didn't ask, I didn't ask him for anything. 
Are you breathing? Are you breathing? Because if you're breathing, that comes from the hand of Jesus. He's your creator. The Bible says that he holds all things together right now by the word of his power. So he's holding you together and your lungs and your breathing out of your ungrateful body right now. So you don't have to ask Jesus for things to use him. Because you have got no choice but to take things from him because he is your creator. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do you realize that Jesus, even though he's as amazing and he's exalted and lifted up, we read that in chapter 52, that he was acquainted with grief. You know what that means? Jesus had a bunch of friends, but his close friend, his name was Grief. Jesus walked around sad a lot. It says he was a man of sorrows. Plural. Plural. That means Jesus was sorrowful on a bunch of different levels. Why was he sorrowful? One, one was he saw the pain of everybody. A lot of pain in this room right now. Some I know, some I don't know. Some I can just tell by looking at you right in the eyes. There's pain in this room. But you know what? Jesus knew exactly why everybody was in pain, and that caused him sorrow. What if you could hear the deepest, most painful moments of your best friends? The things that they keep from you. What if you were walking around and you heard every single one of them? What if you were in a, in, in a town where you loved everybody as deeply as you love your best friend, and you could hear all the pain and sorrow that they were dealing with? every single moment of the day. See, Jesus was a man of sorrows because he understood the pain and suffering of everybody that he was around. He was a man of sorrows because he was always rejected by those people. You see, when you have friends and they're sorrowful, you're going to go and try to help them. And you're going you're to try to open God's word to them and tell them the truth. And what are they going to do? They're going to they're gonna reject you sometimes. That hurts. I, you know, Jesus hasn't changed, by the way. He's walking around in this room right now. You go, oh, Andrew. I'm telling you, he is. And he hears everything. And he feels everything just the same as he did 2,000 years ago. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How did we repay him for his feeling for us? Look at what it says. And as one from whom men hide their faces, so he was despised and we esteemed him not. You know what it means that we hide our face from him? Back in the day, you had this, this horrible skin disease called leprosy. And it was very, very contagious. You still, it's still around today. Leprosy was extremely contagious. So when a leper would walk by, first thing he'd have to do is scream, unclean! You'd have to let the entire know, town know that he was unclean. And then you'd take your cloak and you would do one of these things. You would cover your face because you didn't want to catch the leprosy because it was contagious. You know what that means? The text is saying that Jesus is being treated like a leper. And he was despised to the point where it was almost like people were like, man, get out of here. You're, I, we don't want to catch whatever you have. That's how disgusting we think of you are. That's Jesus. You know, there's some, some groups of people that won't even mention his name. We talked about this last week when you really hate somebody. 
won't even mention their name. There's some people who will not even mention the name of Jesus. They treat him like a leper. This is the one that should be exalted. This is the one that should be lifted up. This is the one that is, is feeling the sorrow and the pain of everybody he's around. And those same people who he feels sorrow for and mourns for are the same people that treat him like he's just this, like he's got the Ebola virus. Why? Well, here's why. Because many of you have been treated like that. You've been treated like that. People have treated you as if you were, you were some disgusting thing. Whether you deserved it or didn't deserve it, doesn't matter. It still feels painful. And so for Jesus to come down, he's saying, I am going to take part in every spectrum of human suffering. So I'm going to take part in rejection. Some of you think, this is kind of crazy, some of you treat yourselves like that. Some of you treat yourselves like lepers. Some of you reject yourself and hate yourself. Maybe you're brushing your teeth in the morning and you're looking in the mirror and you hate what you see. You're disgusted by what you see. And Jesus is saying, I know what it feels like to be treated that way. I, I have endured that type of rejection and suffering so you don't have to. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We did not respect him. You ever been disrespected? You ever been completely and totally dishonored? Has somebody ever taken your dignity from you? Has somebody ever used you and made you feel like you were nothing? Here's another question. Have you ever done that to someone? You ever disrespected someone? You ever dishonored someone? You ever used someone? See, this is a human condition. This is a human condition. On the one hand, we feel rejected, but on the other hand, we do reject it. Everybody in here has rejected someone for whatever reason. Everyone in here has treated others like lepers. We've been treated that way, and we treat others that way. And everybody has their justifications, don't you? There's always some reason for why we use, abuse, and disrespect and dishonor one another. And there's Jesus coming into the midst of all of our selfishness. And he's taking part in the consequences of it onto himself. This is before he goes to the cross, by the way. This is his life. <clears throat> Look at verse 4. I wasn't making up. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He bore them. You know, we're, I, I got, I'm going to a funeral tomorrow. Okay? 24 years old. That's grief. I barely knew the kid, but I'm struck with grief. As the Lord lives, I would have taken his place. I don't know if he knew the Lord. Grief. I'm one guy, and it's one guy. What if you knew the time that everybody was going to die? What if you knew, man, that person right there 
is going to die and never see God or his family ever again because they're not going to repent. You say, man, that guy is cursed. That's a cursed life to carry that. Let me ask you a question. I'm dealing with somebody right now. They died, okay, died in a not-so-good fashion, and you know what? I can actually relate to the parents on a certain level. But, you know, if I'm really down and depressed by it, I can call up Brian, right? I can call up some of my best friends, and I can say, man, this is really bringing me down. And you can kind of relate to me. Who could relate to Jesus? Yeah, you know, I was walking down the street, and I was able to read their minds and things like that. I know exactly what they're going through. Who could Jesus go to and have them say, yeah, man, I know, I know. All we have is God on the planet. That's it. Nobody else could relate to this guy. Now, many of us feel that way in a crowd, right? We feel alone in a crowd. You know, old people can't relate to me. Well, people can relate to you if you give them a chance, actually. That is not true of Jesus. Nobody who he was around could relate to what he was dealing with. He was carrying, literally carrying, everybody. But look, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So there's Jesus, he's sad, he's carrying everybody's trouble, and people are looking at him and going, okay, well, the reason that you're sad is because God is afflicting you for your own sin. I mean, that's what they were saying to him on the cross. Oh, you're supposedly the Son of God. Well, come down if God's pleased with you. All this goodness, all he ever did was love, and how did it get interpreted? You did something wrong, so this is why you're suffering. Has that not ever happened to you? Had you not been accused of things when you were suffering, that it was not your fault? There was a crazy, I don't even know the wisdom of bringing this up, girl gets violated and the judge says to her, well, why didn't, you, basically the judge said to her, why didn't you overpower the guy? Really? Really? But you know what? Jesus is saying, if you could sit down in a room with that girl, He'd say, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be a righteous, innocent person and then suffer and then have everybody say, you're the guilty one. I know what it's like to be the victim who gets blamed. I know what that's like. We esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement of our peace, and with his wounds we are what? Healed. Remember Isaiah said that sin was a what? Sickness. He started off the book saying, you're sick from your head to your toe with sin. And then we hear about this person who is crushed, pierced, and wounded to heal us of our sin sickness. Isaiah says, man, he was not suffering for himself. He was suffering for us. Yes, we've been rejected. Yes, we've been blamed when we've been innocent. Yes, we've been despised and disrespected. But we've done all those things to people. All of us are sick. 
You know why? We're sick because of the things that have been done to us and the things that we do to other people. That's what sin does. It's mutual. Don't you see this is the reason why none of your righteous deeds in yourself can be acceptable to God? You're completely shot through with sin. How in the world can your righteousness be acceptable to God? No, this person is crushed for us and the punishment that brought us peace is upon him. Look, if your good deeds could make you right with God, do you think that God would have Jesus go through all of this hell on earth for you? If, if your goodness could have accomplished it, then what God did was very, very unfair to Jesus, I'll tell you what. You know, when Jesus was in the garden and saying, God, if there is any other way, why did God show up and say, you know what, there is another way. They can just be good. They just be good. You won't have to go through this. No. There was no other way because there is no other righteousness by which we can be healed of our sin sickness. You and God are not on a, on a team to get yourself righteous. You're off the team. You're on the other team working against him. This is a sad fact of reality that we have to embrace and understand about the human condition. All we like sheep have gone astray. This is us. I'm going to do me. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, I, I talk about the difference between a mistake and iniquity. Okay, so here's a mistake. You're going to Burger King and you say, I'm going to double lock with cheese, no ma'am. Okay? And then you pull up in the, in the window and the lady says, have a great day, and the thing is swimming in mayonnaise. That is a mistake. All right? But if you pull up to that same window and you say, hey, you, um, you put mayo on my Whopper, so I need you to take it back and and the, and the person takes your whopper and slams it in your face, that is not a mistake. That is iniquity. You're getting fired for that. You see the difference? Because here's what we do. We hear about sin and we go, yeah, man, you know, but everybody makes mistakes. Or we say, nobody's perfect. And what we're failing to admit and realize is that if you are, you know, 20 years old or 19 or whatever you are, you have accumulated years of purposeful, willful, horrible sins that you did wrong, but you knew they were wrong when you were doing them. Jesus didn't come for mistake makers. You know what the scripture says? Christ Jesus died to save sinners. He came for sinners. People who willfully and terribly sinned. Not mistake makers. Don't try to soften the blow in yourself by saying, yeah, I make mistakes. Well, you don't get crucified and beaten beyond human recognition for mistakes, okay? Think about this. Now, here's a question. Why couldn't God have just sent Jesus to die by a uh, firing squad? Very quick, very painless. Why not hanging? That's about two minutes. Why the brutality? Why the beaten beyond human recognition? Why, why, why? If we have to ask that question, that means we don't understand. Here's why. Here's what God is telling us. There's a million things God is telling us, but here's one of them. You don't see your sin the way God does. 
The only time, really, and why, listen to people when they talk about sin. The only time we see sin is really bad is when it affects us. When it affects us, then we see sin is really bad. But just as a general principle that somebody was dishonoring God, eh. But let something happen to you. Let somebody sin against you. Then you start crying, get angry, get upset. Never cry, get upset for God. You're angry for yourself. You don't see sin the way God sees it. Sin is ugly. Sin is nasty. And if you're going to be forgiven for it, a perfect person had to be beaten senseless for you to be forgiven. That's how horrible sin is. You realize that in, in Roman culture, polite people wouldn't even mention crucifixion? That's how disgusting it was? That's how horrible it was. You wouldn't even mention it in common. It was, you know, if you were talking and somebody mentioned crucifixion, you'd look at that guy like, what are you doing? We don't talk about that. That's how gross it is. That's how gross your sin is. You go, man, just chill, man. Just chill. You know why I'm not going to chill? I'm burying somebody tomorrow. How do you know you're going to be around in three months? Or six months? Or a year? There's an afterlife. You believe that or no? It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's true. I hope you get right with God. I hope, I hope in the last moments of your life, when you're about to pass out, that you know... You know for a fact that you're good with God. I hope we don't play around. You know, th this was a week ago this kid died. Like, as I was speaking, he was dying last week. You're not going to live forever. We need to understand the weight of our sin. You're going to die one day. All of us are going to die one day. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like the sheep that before shares is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? This is a person who was oppressed. Now there's this national conversation about oppression. And, you know, what's right? Is it Black Lives Matter? Is it Blue Lives Matter? You know, you got the Native American pipeline thing. I don't know if people are familiar with that. So there's this, now there's this, like, awareness that people are being oppressed. And there's all this sense of injustice. And once again, now I'm speaking as a black man, okay? I very rarely hear black people on TV say, if black folks are being oppressed, it's bad because it's dishonoring God. Because we're creating God's image. And we're not honoring God as we should. I very rarely hear. I don't think I've ever heard that on CNN. Or, you know what I hear? It's about us. Well, I don't want to be oppressed, okay? But we're not thinking about God. And here is God himself in the flesh. And he bore oppression and affliction. And he didn't open his mouth to defend himself. Why? Here's why. Because Jesus came into the world where, here's what happens, when you combine power with sin, you get oppression, okay? Everybody in this room is an oppressor. Everybody that you've ever had some sort of power or influence over, you have oppressed. Think about your relationships. Think about the games that you play in your relationships. 
to get power over your friends and over your spouse and over what? God forbid some of you get in leadership positions at work. All of us are oppressors. How do you undo oppression? Here's how Jesus undid oppression. Was he came and suffered under oppression and did not defend himself. Good night. Somebody says something sideways on Facebook. Ka -ka 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 -ka. People got to pay. How dare they say that about me? They even though it's half true on Facebook. I'm going to focus on the half that is not true. You don't say that about me. Here is the one person in the universe that had a right to stand up for themselves. And the one person that had the right to stand up for themselves kept his mouth shut for us. Did not defend himself. Went like a lamb to the slaughter. This is a, uh, a real challenge to us as Americans, okay? Because every year we celebrate the fact that what? People were messing with us. We got our guns and we handled our business. Now, I'm not commenting on guns right now. Focus. What I'm saying is you are in a culture that tells you that anybody who messes with you and treats you unfairly, you're obligated to open your mouth and defend yourself. Now, I'm not talking about a person who's just a coward and doesn't like confrontation. Because Jesus engaged in confrontation a lot in his ministry. That's the reason he got crucified, right? I'm not talking about being afraid of confrontation. What I'm talking about is just the desire to always defend yourself. You might even go to the person and confront them, or you might be a super coward and, and talk about them when they're not around and confront them when they're not around. All right? What I'm saying is all of us have done this. Okay, verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although... He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Um, they made this grave with the wicked. O oddly enough, Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Okay? This was written about six, 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, and it was pinpoint accurate. This person, Jesus, was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Why am I talking about this? Here's why I'm talking about this. You say, well, I mean, yeah, you're reading about Jesus, but why should I believe it? Well, you find me another book that can be that accurate 600 years before the events. You won't find me. I study religions. Believe me. I've read the Quran front to back multiple times. Not many times. Multiple times. There is no prophecy like that in any religious book. Pinpoint accurate. Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man. God puts these Easter eggs in the Bible to show you, look, you should believe me regardless, says God, but I'm going to put some proof in there so that will help you if you truly want to believe. If you want to believe, there's enough evidence in there for you to believe if you want. But notice it says there is no violence. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in, in his mouth. Why not just say he never sinned? Why say he had done no violence and there is no deceit in his mouth? Here's a, here's a stab at it, okay? Violence is the, the end of what human beings can do to other human beings. Okay? I mean, we see this every Friday. Is abortion not a violent act? By the way, um, I posted a video on Facebook that, you know, as tough as I am, I still, you know, it took me a while to be able to watch the entire video in its entirety. Is that not violence, what we saw in that video? 
Now here's the thing, if you went through with an abortion, there was violence suffered for you to, be, to forgive you of your violence, okay? We're never gonna talk about abortion without the gospel. But, violence, this is what human beings do. You're not one chapter out of the garden until you see Cain being violent with his brother, right? So violence is the end of the spectrum of what human beings can do to each other. What's lying? Lying is what every human being does. Because it's so easy to just lie. We're seeing this with David. Oh, he's in trouble. Lie. You're going to see it again next week. Lie. It's, it's something that little children do. Just lie. So on the one hand, you've got violence, bloody, horrible, horrific violence that most people are probably not going to engage in, but, you know, is, is the end of what human beings can do to each other. And then on the other spectrum, you've got lying, which is something that we do coming out of the womb, the Bible says. The only reason, you know, my son didn't come out saying some horrible lie when he was born was because he didn't know how to talk yet, but it was inside of him. That's what the Bible says. So this person... He didn't do any of the horribleness, and he also didn't do the easy thing like lying. Man, we've told so many lies that we've forgotten them. We think a person is honest. You know what an honest person is, generally speaking? I'm just going to burst some of your bubbles. An honest person is a person who does not lie as much as you. That's generally what we mean when we say some of these honest. Oh, that guy's honest. Okay. Examine yourself and see if what I'm saying is wrong. <clears throat> some of us, I, I was talking to a person yesterday. Some of us are, are, are so inundated with our lies that we don't even know that we're lying to ourselves. He had done no violence and there is no deceit in his mouth. You go, man, man, those people treated him so terrible. He was such a good guy. Look how those people treated him. Look at the very next verse, verse 10. This verse should trouble you. Yet it was the will of who? The Lord, the Lord to what? Crush him. Crush him. He has put him to grief. Remember all that grief I was talking about earlier? Behind the scenes in the whole thing, God was doing that to him. This is a really, I'm not even going to tell you what people have said about, about this passage. Think through the implications about what you're saying. You're saying God crushed Jesus. You're saying God put Jesus to grief. So the entire world is ganging up on this guy, mocking him, disrespecting him, acting like he's a leper. And Johann said, yeah, but he's got God. Well, wait a second. Now God is with these people crushing Jesus, as if his day wasn't hard enough already. Do you know what Jesus did for you on the cross? He got crushed by his own father for you. That's what it says in the text. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. You know, when Jesus was out there in the garden, he's praying, he's saying, Father, if you can remove this cup from me, that would be great. What is he talking about? I mean, look, in, in the Christian tradition, Simon, you know this, many of our martyrs marched to the arena singing. Is that not true? Perpetua met her death. Go research Perpetua. She met her death bravely. You know, she was doing her hair. They said, why, why are you doing your hair? You're about to get executed. She says, I just don't want to show up to Jesus all, you know, uh, frumpy. 
Okay? Got a little image issue there, but, but I loved it. I loved the part. She said, no, she didn't want to show up as though she had been grieving. Oh, as though she had been grieving. Okay, my bad. There you go. So here's, now think about this. How is it that Perpetua can, can, can meet her death that bravely? I mean, she was so, she guided the sword into her throat because the, the, the soldier was scared to kill her. Okay? She said, just put it. I mean, amazing, amazing woman. How in the world is she meeting her death that way, but Jesus is in the garden asking God to remove the cup from him? Jesus was not afraid of the cross. Okay? You know what he was afraid of? Verse 10. God crushing him. That is what he was afraid of. Because when the scripture says that he bears your sin, bears your iniquity in verse 6, that means that God has to punish all sin. Moses showed up to God and says, hey, God, tell me your name. Meaning, tell me who you are as a person. And God shows up and he says, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And you know what else he said? And I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So God says to Jesus, listen, you're going to bear their sin, and you're going to have to bear their punishment. There's Jesus weighted down with trillions of sins. Scripture says there's a number that no man can count of redeemed people who have accumulated trillions of sins that is weighing Jesus down. That in and of itself should have crushed him. But then it says the Lord himself comes and crushes Jesus. Remember it says the chastisement of our peace, the punishment of our peace. Who's doing the punishing? God is doing the punishing. That's what the text says. People don't like this verse. I don't like the verse. People say, that's not fair. No, it's not. But it's either that or you go to hell forever. That's what's at stake. That's why it's important that we see our sin as horrible as it actually is. Yeah, it was really terrible that it was beat beyond human recognition. But God is just giving you a physical depiction of what was happening to Jesus spiritually. That is why he chose crucifixion and not a firing squad, because he would have missed the point. <coughs> it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You say, okay, well, this is terrible. This is super depressing. Look at this. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, watch. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. It's not all gloom and doom. Yes, he was crushed. Yes, he was beaten senseless. But God raises him from the dead. You say, We're, I don't see a resurrection there. Ryan sees a resurrection there. Here's why I'm saying there's a resurrection there. Because up above... In verse 9, they said they made his grave with the wicked. That means he got put in a grave. Do you agree? But then, later on, it says, he shall see his offspring, and that God will prolong his days. How does this person end up in the grave, but then have his days prolonged? Because God raised him from the dead. He shall see his offspring, his seed. You know what that means? His children. Oh, all these people who are mocking him, despising him, using him, ignoring him, somehow they become his children. That is power. Yeah, okay, the Red Sea, whatever. 
You turn an enemy of God into a child of God and come talk to me. Man, this is power. This is the arm of the Lord. This is the power of God. He will see his offspring. They become his offspring. But watch, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he'll see and be satisfied. What is he seeing? What is he seeing? He's seeing Ian. Here's Ian. You know, we baptized Ian two months ago in the Androscoggin River. Ian said, oh, this is nasty. I'm radioactive. I'm never going into the Antro again. And then last week, there's Ian in the Androscoggin. You know why? Because he's baptizing his friend John. You know what Jesus was saying when he looked down from heaven and saw that picture, that, those boys getting baptized in that nastiness? He says, that was worth it. Everything that I just described, Jesus says it was worth it to see you, Ian, Heather, Chloe, Tanya, Zoe, Jeremy. It was worth it. You're worth it. You say, you said that we're all horrible, nasty sinners. Yes. Well, then how can we be worth it? I don't know. I don't know why he loves you the way he loves you. I don't know. I didn't go to school. Find a, a, a theology person who can explain the insane degree to which God loves you. Come back and explain it to me, because I don't know. Well, yeah, he did that by putting them on Jesus. So, but the question I'm asking is, but why? Why? I mean, the angels sinned. Did Jesus become an angel and die for angels? No, sir. They sinned and God said, you're out of here. And there's no cross for the angels. But for you, he goes through all of this. He will see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. You know, when Jesus was going to the cross, you know, we don't have the conversation between the Father and the Son. You know, the Father says, no, Jesus, this is the only way. I can just imagine the Father saying, but you, you wait on the other side of this. You wait. You know, in Jude it says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory, what? With great joy. Great joy. Not joy. Great joy. You know Jesus has a personality. He's an actual person. You know what brings him great joy? It's bringing people into the presence of the Father. You know in Hebrews it says he's not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters. You're ashamed of the things that you've done. But Jesus is up there with some nail-pierced hands. He goes, I'm not ashamed to call that girl my sister. I'm going to bring her before God with great joy. And there's going to be no shame. I'm going to claim her. He was despised by people. But he's going to claim us and say, that one belongs, look, she belongs to me. This is the joy that was set before Jesus when he went to the cross. Now watch this. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Notice, remember, it says there's none righteous, no, not one. Remember we said all of your righteousness is filthy rags? 
How in the world are you going to stand before a holy God? You know why? Because there is one righteous person. One. And look what it says. By knowledge, just by, by serving him. Is that what it says? By serving him, he'll make many righteous? Does it say by following all of his commands? No. How do you get accounted righteous in the text? By knowing him. By his knowledge. When the Hebrew says, by knowledge of him shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. You know what accounted righteous means, Catherine? What it means is, you yourself are not righteous, but it gets moved into your account. Not that he makes you innocent. We talked about this a little bit. Innocent means you didn't do anything wrong, right? That's what innocent means. Righteous means you only did the right thing. It doesn't say he makes us accounted innocent. It says he makes us accounted righteous. That's what the text says. He moves righteousness into your account. So when he looks at Ian, Ian goes, man, you know, I don't know. Between last week and today, I did a lot of unrighteous things. And God says, I don't know what you're talking about. All I see is you've done nothing but righteousness. Why? Because the righteousness of Jesus is put to his account because Ian knows Jesus. Here's my question. Do you know Jesus? I'm not saying do you perfectly know him. I'm not saying do you perfectly follow him. I'm not saying, you know, are you a good person? You know, the scripture says Christ died for the ungodly. Do you know him? That's the question. No, I'm not saying do you know about him. No. No. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Is it, do you tr Here's what it means to trust Jesus. Here's what it means. You say, okay, Jesus, it's this or nothing. It's you did this for me, and that's all I got before God, or nothing. You say, okay, Jesus, if it's not you that's going to make me righteous before God, if it's not you that's not going to make me right with God, then I'm done. I'm not going to put in, you know, 80% Jesus and 20% me. This is human. This is what we do. We take the amazing work that Jesus did, and then we start adding our, our jelly beans into the count. No! You'll go to hell if you do that. Ultimately. No. It's just Jesus and his righteousness. And you get accounted righteousness. He bears all your iniquities. All your sins get taken by him on the cross. And all of his goodness is given to you by faith and knowledge of him. That is the exchange. That is what he's offering you tonight. And to be quite frank with you, that is what I wish I could have told somebody last week for one last time. All of your sin gets put on Jesus. All of them. All of them. Hebrews says once for all time. Jesus died before any of you were even born. So it's not like he died for your sins and the minute you accept him, okay, all those are gone and then you, you, you create a new account. Wrong. It says he died for all of our sins. All of them. So you put all your sins on Jesus and Jesus puts all his goodness on you. God treats Jesus as if it was you and then he treats you as if you were Jesus. Nobody could have made up this story. Have you ever heard a story like this ever in the history of humanity? Ever. Anything even close to it. This is how I know it's from God. 
Because none of us could have made it up. This is madness. You say, what in the world? Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That is basically a picture of him at the head of a conquering army. This guy who's beaten all this, he is a conqueror. He rose as a champion. And notice, he divides a portion with the many. You know what that means? Those same people that he died for and he redeems? Now he comes and says, hey guys, let's rule this world together. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. You. He says, okay, now we're going to cut up the spoils. You know, the, the spoils of war, basically. You go into a village and you win and you go, okay, you get the camel, you get this, you get that. You know what Jesus is going to do one day with all you redeemed people? He's going to sit down and say, all right, guys, well, there's a whole universe here. We've got to divide this up. Read your New Testament. That's what it says. You're going to inherit the world. That's what it says. Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 3. It says you're going to inherit all this stuff. Jesus says, man, your sin is taken care of. I'm at the lead. Let's go and fill this universe with the image and glory of God. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What's Jesus doing right now? Right now, what is he doing? You say, you say it's enough that he died for us and he did all that craziness. You know what he's doing right now? He's interceding. He's praying for us. Paul said, Christ Jesus who died. And then he goes, well, more than that, who was raised to life is also at the right hand of God. You know one of the reasons Jesus rose from the dead? is so that he could go to the right hand of God and intercede for you. He's at the right hand of God, interceded. He poured out his soul to death. You know what that means? Jesus gave you everything he had on that cross. Everything he had, he gave to you. Okay, so, life is short. Everybody in this room has a day and an hour and a minute and a second when you are going to breathe your last breath. Only those who are perfectly righteous are going to be able to stand in the presence of God. You should not play with that. Don't assume that tomorrow you're going to wake up. You don't know that. But there is a God who loves you more than you know. There is a God who will do anything for you. There is a God who poured himself out to empty bring you to himself. Now, we don't, we don't do the hand, don't raise your hand, or you want to follow Jesus, you raise your hand. I'm going to pray in a second. Tell Jesus in your own stumbling way that you want to know him, because that crazy guy up there said, if I know you, that you'll forgive me all my sins and make me righteous. You'll take over the world, apparently. Tell him that. Um, all right. And then talk to some of your friends here and we can show you next steps. All right. I'm going to pray now. I'm going to say, Jesus, thank you so much for your cross. Thank you for Isaiah the prophet God and telling us the straight truth about who we are, how undeserving we are of your love, but how much you love us beyond we, we don't even know, God. 
Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to bear my cross and the cross of my friends. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would just move in this room, God, and break and open hearts and enter in. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, Proclaiming the Kingdom of God for the Sake of the City. For more resources, visit cell53.com.